0: some of this was over my head, but I got most of it. <laughs> I think any any good podcast where I feel a little bit stupid is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that means that somebody, somebody learned something. You could. Hi and welcome to Backup Central's restored all podcast. I'm your host W Curtis Preston aka Mr. Backup and I have with me my hair and Bollywood consultant Persona Maliandi. How's it going Persona? <laughs> I think I'm I'm good Curtis but I think you're going to have to mix it up. I kind of miss the old way you used
1: to introduce me. Persona Maliandi. Persona 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 Maliandi. Yeah, like that. <laughs> uh,
0: or le- let's get ready to backup. No, no, we can't. Yeah. Do that. <laughs> No new Bollywood shows for me since the last time we talked but you just told me in a conversation earlier today did you did you say you have caught up on a on a Bollywood series with how many episodes So it's a Hindi TV show
1: Okay that my wife got me started on it's Okay 722 episodes currently Holy crap. Um, and it's not done by the way, it's still continuing to go on, but they had to kind of postpone it because of
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: the yeah. recording, but they're actually making new shows still. Like, I think the cast has like kind of shrunk down and you can really notice it because like some of the characters are gone. They don't even mention like some of the main characters from
0: before. wonder if they'll do like, like, uh, they'll do a bewitched, which in, you know, in the U S that's referred to as when you swap the actor for one of the main characters and don't say anything about it. <laughs> oh, they, 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 they've done that multiple one season of the next. Have they done that? Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. They've already yeah, done that. Yeah. It's like, wait, that's right. a
1: different person, but that's yes, yeah, but okay. there are a lot of Indian TV shows, which are like many, many years. And these all are like five days a week. So it's no yeah. different than like yeah.
0: uh, soap yeah. operas here. Let's get to our guest. Cause she's like, what are they? T- I thought we were going <laughs> to talk about technology and we're talking about Bollywood. <laughs> So we have uh, another guest who, I don't know, we, see, we, we seem to keep doing this, where we get these, these industry veterans, where they've been in the industry for, for over 25 years. Or in your case, it uh, looks like a, just a little over 20 years, having been at uh, EMC and also at Pivotal. And now uh, she is the CTO for Weaveworks. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Cornelia Davis.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And you're so kind to make me 10 years younger than I am, but I've actually been in the industry for about 30. Oh, so I am that wow. old.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, well, that's as much as you put into LinkedIn. How's okay.
2: That? Okay. So yeah, I need right. to update that apparently.
0: <laughs> so we're kind of contemporaries. Uh, Persona's he's a youngin' a little young bit one. by comparison. Uh, but because uh, I started in... In the industry in 93, um, just after getting out of the Navy, the U.S. Navy. Ah, okay. And, uh, well, I'm wondering if you're counting, you're probably counting your time at uh, uh, Cal State, maybe, or, or Indiana no. University. Well,
2: I, I graduated from Cal State Northridge with my undergrad in 88, so it has been more than 30 years, and I did work. Um, immediately following actually the summer before I graduated, I started my career in aerospace working for, for Hughes aircraft company. Um, and then I did take a couple more years off of work and went back to graduate school at Indiana university and studied programming languages and theory of computing. Um, but yeah, now I've been doing this for a while.
0: I did. I actually did a stint for about a year for Hughes space, um, ah. you know, HSC down there in, in El Segundo um, put in there, put in a, a enterprise wide backup system. That was a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, it was fascinating because you know, the, it, I love the whole shake and bake uh, thing because you know it, it's a unique world where you where you make uh, you make a very sensitive computing device and then you throw it up in the air. And you're not allowed to touch it ever again, and it and it needs to last for ten or twenty years, right? Uh, that's just a very you know making satellites is just uh, just a, a very unique um, world, it's a different way
1: I, you go about designing things.
0: Yeah, and oh, and and the other thing is that on one side of this device, it will be like you know a thousand degrees and on the other side, it will be absolute zero, <laughs> yeah. right? Cause depending on which side is facing the sun. Right. Um, yeah. I, and, and also that like that heat doesn't, um, what, what's, the, I don't know what the proper term like dissipate, uh, doesn't, uh, heat doesn't dissipate in the same way in pure space that it does, uh, in an atmosphere. Uh, so yeah, it's just a really, um, interesting world. But uh, so you are, uh, and also I, I neglected to mention on your bio, you also are a, a fellow book author. So you wrote uh, the book Cloud Native Patterns, which is available at Manning, uh, which is how you came to our attention. We were, we were going to have you on before the Women in Tech Conference. How, uh, th- so you spoke at that?
2: Yeah, the, the Manning conference was last week, or, mm-hmm. no, a couple of weeks ago. So I spoke at that and I actually did speak about my 30 year career. Um, <laughs> so one of the folks at Manning had asked me, you know, CTOs, female CTOs, 30 years in, you know, in, in, into their it's careers. It's a small club. Are, it's a pretty small club. <laughs> and will you, will you talk about how you came to be there and in what you do now? And so it was pretty fun to look back on. I had like a photo of of the very first computer that I ever touched, which was in high school and it was a TRS 80 and it had a tape drive. Right. Yep. a cassette. It was drive. a
0: cassette tape, right? Exactly. That was the storage device. was a cassette yep. tape. Yep.
2: Yep. Yep.
0: And so, what, what, what about the first com- uh, commercial uh, system that you touched?
2: You know, I want to say that the first, um, let's see, that was high school. The first, Mainframe that I touched, which was in college, was I think a PDP eleven, yeah, if I remember right. correctly. Which is so what they I designed remember, Unix on. Yeah, and and I I had in the beginning of my my time in the university, I had definitely had to go into the lab, and you just had terminals, and you were connecting to the PDP eleven and getting your programming assignments done then. But it was definitely the beginning of kind of the PC era, because while I was still in undergrad, I did get my first PC that had, I don't know, 20K bytes of like spinning disk <laughs> yeah. or something like that, yeah. which I thought yeah. I will never use that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: So. But you jumped from that and now all the way to the current CTO job where it's more on the cloud side. And I believe you were mentioning it's Kubernetes. So could you talk a little bit about what you do today?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I work for a company called Weaveworks. Uh, It's a company that's about six or so years old. I've been with them since the beginning of the year. And we are in that six-year history, even though we're still kind of a smallish startup, we've done a number of things. And when I say we, it's the royal we, because, of course, I wasn't with them that whole time. We started out with kind of networking, doing networking technology Around containers, so it was definitely getting into this kind of more modern cloud architectures. Even though maybe we didn't call it cloud native back then, um, and then we started moving up from networking up to you know kind of higher level layers. We did some observability, then Kubernetes came along, and we started doing observability for Kubernetes. Did a SaaS solution, and then a number of years ago, we were we were operating that SaaS. Offering um, ourselves, and we had come up with an operational model for um, how to operate this cloud-native service up in the cloud. And we had an outage, and we were able to come back from that outage very quickly because of the specific way that we were doing operations. I tell you that long story as a and, and to sum it up, what we did after we discovered that is, we now said, ah, that's the sweet spot is. So WeaveWorks is a company that is all around cloud-native operational software. And there's a term that we, that my, my CEO and, and colleague and cof, or co-founder of WeaveWorks coined, which is GitOps. And so what it says is that we, as an industry, have gotten pretty good at understanding cloud-native software patterns, and we've gotten pretty good at continuous integration and those types of things. But what does operations look like in this highly distributed, constantly changing world that is the cloud? Mm-hmm. That's what we do. At and so how is
1: GitOps different? Because I've always heard the term DevOps and GitOps is new to me. Are they different?
2: Are they similar-ish? So GitOps is one of the ways that you can achieve um, DevOps and so I have spent a great deal of my last 10 years in the DevOps community. I'm involved in Gene Kim's um, DevOps Enterprise Summit. Gene, actually, I consider him a friend and industry colleague. He wrote the forward to my book, for example. Um, and so I've been in the DevOps community for a long time and, and did a lot of that at Pivotal as well because we were really around developer and operator productivity in, in the Pivotal days. Um, and what we're doing with GitOps is we are applying more opinionated, specific patterns to realizing the goals of DevOps, and the goals of DevOps being all around really shortening those feedback loops and getting overall better at doing development all the way through to operations and delivering value to customers. And
0: here so here's a, th- this is one of those uh what do you call it like loaded questions uh by the way before before we go any further i'd throw out our usual disclaimer persona and i do both work for druva and the opinions that you hear are ours this is not a druva podcast and also uh be sure to rate this podcast at slash restore um so my loaded question is this, the term cloud native means different things to different people. And I know that you coming up in or I'm guessing that you coming up in the Kubernetes space, you see cloud native is very well. I, I, I How's, I'll, I'll phrase it as a question. Do you see Kubernetes, uh, like if you're not doing Kubernetes then you're not cloud native, or w- w- how, how do you see that?
2: No, not at all. Um, I, you can absolutely do cloud native uh, if you're not doing Kubernetes. It's just that Kubernetes does part of the work for you. So it mm-hmm. actually is easier to do if you're doing Kubernetes. And if you'll if if you'll permit me for a moment, I'll describe it in the context of um, the book that I wrote. So, mm-hmm. Cloud Native Patterns is a book targeted at application developers and operator and and at architects. So it's really about the application architecture. And what it does is it, it describes a whole host of patterns. I don't know. I think I go over about thirty or so patterns throughout the book, and um, and those things are things like retries. I mean a retry is a simple pattern in the cloud because the cloud is so highly distributed and the network is always going to be coming in and out so if you just make one one request and assume that it's going to come back then you're going to be in a world of hurt you have to do things like automated retries but then you need protection mechanisms like circuit breakers to make sure that you don't end up melting your system down with a whole bunch of retries and and so there's a whole host of those patterns Going back to your question about, can you be doing cloud-native without Kubernetes, the reality is that it's important as a developer or a software architect to understand all the patterns. But in many cases, you don't have to write them yourself Mm
0: -hmm. in your
2: software, but you have to understand them and understand whether the platform you're running in um, provides an implementation for some of those patterns. And Kubernetes provides an implementation because it's designed for cloud-native applications. It provides an implementation for a whole host of those patterns. And so now if you're using Kubernetes, then you just have to know how to configure your software, like when you deploy it, to leverage those implementations of those patterns properly.
1: So it's almost as if it's providing right out of the box some of these patterns defined for you so you don't have to go figure out how do I build those and implement those. But they're already sort of out of the box, ready for you to go. And you could focus on the other value that you're looking to add for your application.
2: Exactly, exactly. So one one concrete example I would give is that Kubernetes can be deployed in such a way that it, it crosses failure domains. So you could have a Kubernetes cluster that crosses a number of different racks, and then you can configure it in such a way that the application developer, they have to understand what it means to have failure domains and what it means to deploy applications across those failure boundaries so that if a rack goes down, your application is still up and running. But they don't necessarily have to implement the, "Okay, I'm going to put one instance here and one instance there. Kubernetes will say, "Okay, you want this distributed across the failure domains? Great. I'll take care of that for you. But as an architect, you just have to design your software so that there's multiple instances and that you're not doing sticky sessions and things like that.
0: Yeah, that yeah, that does make sense. Uh, I, the reason why I asked that is you know because I'm, I'm aware of, and again admittedly, I am not a developer. Uh, I you know I've, I've grown up in the, the sysadmin side of things and then obviously the very backup centric sysadmin side of things. So my my knowledge of development uh, is is limited. Uh, but when I started looking at like the cloud native foundation, cloud native computing foundation, it seemed very Kubernetes-centric. And that and that if you weren't doing Kubernetes in containers, then well, then you you didn't fit the definition of that particular foundation. But maybe that's just that world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the CNCF definitely gives that impression. And the Kubernetes project was the first one that they really embraced. Um mm-hmm. and the and the founders of the CNCF and the early you know the people who built it up, my again, Alexis Richardson, my my CEO and, and the co-founder of Weaveworks was one of the people who was very, very involved in setting up the CNCF and the government governance and things like that. But then also very instrumental in setting up the CNCF was Craig McClucky, who's one of the creators of Kubernetes back in the Google days. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the CNCF definitely puts, if you will, Kubernetes very much at the center. But there are a fair number of other projects, quite a number of other projects that aren't, aren't totally bound to Kubernetes that provide value in other settings. It just so happens that Kubernetes does so many things that the vast majority of the industry has plans or is already moving in that direction. So, so no, you don't technically need to have Kubernetes. It just does offer you an awful lot. So You're just like why you know, wouldn't
0: you want to use it?
2: Exactly.
1: <laughs> so for yeah. someone who's building traditional applications, say they're using on premises, and for them wanting to get to Kubernetes, that's probably a big leap or it could be a daunting leap for them. Are there sort of baby steps they can do along the way?
2: Yes. I mean there's definitely baby steps and there and and the the problem that you describe is actually multifaceted. There is the 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 challenge of taking an existing application um, and let's say you want to migrate that to the cloud. And we've seen plenty of people try to, you know, kind of lift and shift and then think then when the cloud does what it does, which is (laughs) it shifts around it, things are changing in the cloud, you know, a server gets rebooted or it just dies completely and things like that. Software that's designed for, Infrastructure that was expected not to fail doesn't mm-hmm. work well in the highly dynamic environment that is the cloud. Um, now, do you have to completely refactor that all the way to you know cloud native microservices using all the patterns that I alluded to and those types of things to be able to get to the cloud? The answer is no. You can you can certainly start, um, and one of the most basic things is is. Uh, um, start to refactor places where you make sure that you factor state out of your out of memory, for example. So if you are storing a whole lot of things in memory, if that machine goes away, you're losing everything that's in memory. So you can go through a process where you can really start to look at where's the data that I need to instead of putting it in memory. Maybe I'm even using a cache. Maybe I'm using something like memcache or something like that, which externalizes that state. So there's incremental ways you can get there. Now, you, though, ask about Kubernetes. If you're going to try to go from my traditional environment, first, you've got these hurdles of, okay, there's some refactoring I need to do to my app. Again, not all or nothing, not big bang. You can do it incrementally. But then once I've done that refactoring, where do I want to land it? Well, going straight all the way to Kubernetes, Kubernetes is extraordinarily complex. <laughs> so does that mean that you have to become a Kubernetes expert and run your Kubernetes environment? Or am I going to use something from the cloud? Am I going to use something from AWS or Microsoft or Google? or
1: Like a managed service, correct? A
2: managed service. Even just choosing to use a managed service and deciding which one you want to use and then being able to manage how you use that managed service is extraordinarily complex. And so I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you go all the way there. Um, you know, maybe you say, "Okay, I'm not going to go to containers right away." And I will say, for example, that I live this almost on a you know a, a, a ver- fairly regular basis. My son, who works for, by the way, an aerospace company, he works for Raytheon, is taking a legacy, you know, 25, 30 year old code base that for for some satellite systems, and they're containerizing it. And so it's so fun for me to see these like, (laughs) okay, well, they were mounting disks and now he's like, I have to, I'm going into a Docker container. I have to mount an external disk. (laughs) It's It's like weird. Yeah. 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 And I said to him once, you know, you guys need Kubernetes. He said, yeah, some of our architects are talking about that, but they're not there yet. They're starting with Docker and they'll get there eventually.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, the, the, I mean, we we do see this a lot in, in our space where companies that are offering products they want to start offering them as a service, and they have an application that was written, uh, you know, quite sometimes thirty years ago, right? A backup app that was written twenty or thirty years ago that was that was actually originally designed to run on bare metal, and has been adapted over time to run in VMs, and then. They move it into the cloud, and and uh, the challenge I think that they have is that if they do any any refactoring at all, um, short of what what I, what I have seen them do is that they'll they'll create a new GUI, right? Um, you know, create a new interface that sits on top of the old product and gives it a much more modern feel, and that they'll uh, design in the cloud. But but if they start refactoring the core application, the challenge they then have is now they have two different code bases, right? Because they have the old uh, product that they're still maintaining and the new product, and they can't because they're, uh, you know, because they have an existing <laughs> they have an existing customer base, and that's where most of their revenue is. They can't just turn off the old stuff, um, you know, without. Making a very large group of people unhappy. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And then, as soon as you start doing, you know, even if you were to start factoring out and putting some of it in containers, and there's things like strangler patterns and putting in proxies and things like that that can facilitate that, you've now, in the meantime, until you get over to the other endpoint, you have extraordinarily complicated your deployment scenario because now you need VMs and you need a cont- an environment that runs containers. And so it it definitely that migration process is hard. One of the things that you you remind me of is it's very interesting because when we went to I've because I was at EMC and Pivotal, I've spent quite a number of years partnering very closely with VMware. And if you reflect back on back on what VMware did when they went to virtualization, their goal really was we're gonna create virtualized infrastructure, but we're not gonna change if you will, the APIs, there are API, sure, there's APIs to get virtual machines. Mm-hmm. But then once you have the virtual machines, our goal is to make those virtual machines look just like your bare metal machines. Right. So they were trying to disrupt as little as possible. All bets are off when we're going over into this cloud <laughs> native, because cloud native doesn't make that assumption. It says we actually, for you to get the benefits that these, you know, big players have achieved out in the cloud you have to refactor stuff eventually to get there yeah,
1: yeah just it's doing cool. the existing stuff is not going to get you to where you need to go
2: yeah yeah so let's talk about so so two so
0: two questions that I'll just ask at once cuz I I don't want to forget either of them one is um what kind of benefits do you get by refactoring you know an existing product uh and then what downsides do you get by 100% not refactoring
2: yeah um, that's a great question and so off the top of my head there are a number of benefits that I would call out first um, one of the first one of the things that you absolutely get is you get resilience because one of the the key thing that happens in um, in cloud native is that you have redundancy all over the place mm-hmm. and I talk about redundancy is you need redundancy of your compute. So what that means is if I've got a service, you know, some component in my system, I don't just deploy it once, I deploy it multiple times. But then there's also redundancy of the interaction patterns, and that's what I was alluding to earlier with retries. Mm-hmm. So you tool into that redundancy around retries. And then, of course, there's the space that you know more than I do, which is redundancy in data. And so you've got to have a redundancy in compute storage and network. And if you do that right, and, and what these cloud native patterns do is it is it makes that kind of a mainstay. It's not an afterthought. It's like the central thing. And then we build everything around these redundant patterns. So re- you definitely get more resilient systems.
0: So, so if I could put that into storage speak, when I use um, S3 instead of let's say block storage right if, if I don't refactor I'm a VM using you know block storage but if I use s3 which is a more cloud native like service and it automatically replicates the data in three locations um, you know and, and it's a much more available service then I get the benefit of the kind of benefit that you're talking about is that a that, decent example.
2: That's that's a perfect example. It's in the former. You you then had to think about okay, so what do I do with that block storage? How do I back it up, or how do I how do I add the replication to it? Um, yeah, because it's cloud- not, a
0: lot of people don't realize that it's not included. With, that's in- right. In EBS, yeah. And EBS, and I'm assuming other, because I, you know, one of the downsides, as you know, of working at a vendor, you end up spending a lot of time in one place and not in another, right? So I'm assuming it's similar in other, <laughs> in other cloud services, but an EBS or an Amazon EBS is in, it's not even replicated within an availability domain. It's essentially, it's a, it's a, you know, uh, what, what's the a LUN? It's a LUN on a disk, yeah. right? Yeah. And if it goes away, it goes away. Yep. Um. Yeah
2: that's right and you can put stuff in place you can do backups against that but mm-hmm. then now you're doing backups and you're having to recover which is very different than having replicated copies across failure domains
0: which is kind of back to your earlier point which is why wouldn't you want to right and the only real answer the only real answer to that would be well because it's hard.
2: <laughs> it is. We, and, can't and just,
0: we can't just do it tomorrow with a giant application that already exists.
2: Yeah, and, and I'll get back to those downsides in a moment, but there's another upside that I want to pu- want to highlight that is really critically important, and that is around um, uh, team productivity. And we sometimes call it developer productivity, but I actually, I don't like that term because I think it's not just the developer, it's the whole life cycle. It's the developer and operational efficiency. That is hugely improved with these cloud native architectures because the cloud native architectures are, by by definition, more modular, and each of those components are more autonomous. And so, when you have autonomy, and you get really crisp with contracts across these autonomous teams, then that's where you can get sh- really shorten these feedback loops. Because I've been each first,
1: the- pers- oh, go ahead.
2: I, well, I've been in the industry long enough to know, to have worked on these systems where when we release them every 18 months, that was an 18 month long feedback loop. Mm. And now when you have autonomous teams that are doing smaller things that aren't such a big bang thing, they can release things. And of course, that's an important thing is that you don't build a whole bunch of microservices, but then release them only eight, every 18 months is a big old set. You have to have independent release cycles, which we'll get to the downsides in just yeah. a second. Um, you have to have independent release cycles. But now you can you can have feedback loops that are on the order of hours sometimes rather than 18 months.
0: Yeah, I know that from from the idea from uh, an initial, like in a traditional software development lifecycle, from an initial idea to the time that someone actually deploys that idea in a customer environment is years. Yep. Right? On, on average, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I'm a huge fan. I'm. I i do not know if you're familiar with the work of DORA, which is the DevOps Research Assessment Organization.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, it's a group. It's a. It's a group in the DevOps space. They are the. They are the people who um, have published the State of the DevOps report every year. So Nicole Forsgren, Jez Humble, and Gene Kim were the founders, and they talk about. They've done studies where they have they have correlated high high to low performing organizations the high performing organizations being the ones that are more profitable gaining market share and the low ones quite the opposite and they found that there's a core, strong correlation between short feedback loops or shortening that time from idea to to you know deployment and production with high performing organizations so that whole developer productivity thing has Direct ties to to um, business outcomes, and so that is a hugely valuable thing that is proven now. It was speculative in the beginning, but it's absolutely proven. It's it's worth in these cloud native architectures in the last ten years.
0: Yeah, when I when I look at that idea, I mean, you know, my. <laughs> In, in my mind, what I heard was, well, yeah, of course. Right. But, but it is nice to, it is, of course, of course you're more effective and you're more profitable if you can turn over ideas, you know, more quickly. Right. But it is nice to see the, you know, some um, uh, empirical data to, to back that up.
2: Yeah, exactly. But you had asked about downsides. Yeah. So, of, and of I already not,
0: of not refactoring, just to specific.
2: Oh, of not refactoring. I thought yeah. you were you were asking about the downsides. What are the what are the hard well, problems I, I, that I you th- take on as you refactor? Yeah, I, I think
1: let's well, I, first do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. All
2: right. Yeah, because there are I wouldn't call them necessarily downsides, but you take on you take on certain burdens that you didn't have before. So, for example, when everything was running in a single process, you could make a function call and you knew you were going to get, if you didn't get something back, well, it, then there were bigger problems because you yourself you, you <laughs> yourself were dead, right? But if you made a function call, you were going to get back an answer. And now you're in a highly distributed setting. And so now you have to worry about things like retries. Or as I had hinted at just a moment ago, you've got these autonomous teams that are have in, independent release cycles for their software. Now you have to worry about, Okay, if I'm a service that's calling another service and it releases version 5, do I know whether the contract has changed from version 4 to version 5 and can I is it backward compatible or do I need to make some changes? So you have to release engineering takes on quite a bit more burden. Um, now, the good news is that you can automate a lot of that, which takes us all the way back to what we do with at Weaveworks, is, is help with that whole operational burden of cloud native.
1: And even just from uh, the contract perspective, I guess also depending on how mature the organization is and how stringent they are in following the contracts, I guess that also makes a difference in terms of managing all of the release process.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you have to get really, really good at things like Semver, you know, semantic versioning, and, and be pretty strict about what you're doing with that. Um, you know, do not make breaking API changes with a patch release um, because a lot of you know. people will be unhappy. Yeah, because a lot of people will be unhappy, and and that's that's one of the, that's one of the contracts. And I don't necessarily only mean API, but that's one of the contracts that you have when you work in this highly distributed autonomous sets of autonomous teams is that you have to follow certain rules like don't make breaking API changes in in patch releases.
0: I think we've answered that question. So let's go to the other question that I was asking, which is if I don't, if I, so again, on one extreme, I I refactor everything. On the other extreme, I just take my VM and I move it into EBS or or uh, I move it into EC2 and I need storage, so then I put that storage in EBS or whatever the you know the the equivalent is in your favorite cloud provider. What what are the downsides? So you you alluded to it earlier. You you talked about the fact that things move around and issues like that.
2: Yeah, I mean it really depends on your app. Of course, there may be very little downsides. So if you have an application that um, that if if it suffer some downtime or even if it can have maintenance windows and there's no problem with having maintenance windows because really no one is using this software between you know 4 a 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. Um, then you can minimize some of those downtime that downtime but achieving like 24/7 never goes down that's where you start to get into the downsides of just trying to lift and shift because and what-
0: why is that? What uh, 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 oddly enough, I, I I was not even aware of this particular issue that you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and so so for example, let's take a piece of software that you've written that is not has not been built with redundancy in mind. Right. And so you're going to deploy it. You're going to create your VMs. You're going to deploy it on those VMs, and then the Amazon region that that VM is sitting in goes down. Mm-hmm. And Amazon has never promised that their regions will not go down. And in fact, the first four words in my book, beginning (laughs) of chapter one, are it's not Amazon's fault. (laughs) And yeah, because and then I went on and I talked about an outage that Amazon had. It was in September of 2015, I think. And in that particular outage, it's really interesting when I studied
1: it. Was that U.S. East one?
2: Uh, it probably was. Um, and if I remember correctly, yes. And, um, what's interesting, I mean, I did some research into what caused it and actually what caused it was, remember when I mentioned retries earlier and I said, but when you do retries, you have to be really careful to put protections in place that you don't end up DDoSing yourself with retry (laughs) storms.
1: That's what happened.
2: that That's outage, yeah, exactly. That outage happened because of a retry storm. Um, and so it was super interesting to do the research under the covers of that. But the story that I start off with in the book is that uh, this region went down because of the, this problem that Amazon experienced. And there's all sorts of, as we know, uh, you know, Amazon is still the, the biggest cloud provider out there and has the most, you know, production workloads running on it. And there were all sorts of systems that went down, IMDB, Nest, a bunch of services went down. And what I talk about in there is that Netflix, who are very, very famous for running on AWS, kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah, we had a brief availability blip. And so going back to your question is that if you had deployed your, if you hadn't refactored and you had deployed into that region and the region was down for six hours, you were down for probably 10 because once the region came back up, it would take some time for you to reestablish, you know, all of that stuff.
0: And when you say, when you say the region goes down, do you mean a given service within a region or just the whole thing?
2: Um, the, it can. I don't remember if all their services went down. I don't think all of them did, but certainly the EC2, the yeah, I thought it was, was EC2 20. went
1: down because of a right config and, storm. and w- yeah.
2: what was underlying it was um there were, the cha- the the DDoS thing happened because of a change to RDS, so I think RDS was down as well, um, but maybe not all the other services. But I mean, certainly and that was
0: did. and that was entirely within that region, and by that I mean it it didn't happen just within an availability zone it happened correct it, okay
2: that's correct it took down the whole region um but these this is what i was talking about with different failure domains because on the one hand you can use availability zones that's one boundary that's one failure boundary that you need to know about and that will help you for a rack going down or, or a rack going down for maintenance or a plug you know got pulled the proverbial plug Regions are, again, Amazon doesn't just give you one availability zone within a region. They give you access to four. Mm-hmm. They don't give you access to one region. They give you access to whatever number of regions you want. And the reason that Netflix had the big shrug was because they had not only designed their software, but they had designed all of their operational and deployment practices to be able to leverage multiple regions. Mm-hmm. And you take on that burden. And the reason that all these other companies hadn't yet was because they, well, they didn't know how yet, they hadn't gotten to it, whatever the case may be.
1: And and I think this is also some of the things Netflix does with their chaos monkey testing, right, to make sure, can they handle outages of various services in the infrastructure?
2: Yep, that's right. They're constantly breaking things.
0: That was Persona's nickname in in college. Chaos Chaos monkey. Monkey. (laughs) Chaos monkey. (laughs) I think when I asked you the question you you immediately went to sort of downsides from an availability and performance perspective uh, I the, the downside I I seem to focus on a lot that that I believe exists and I don't know if you can speak to this or not and that is one of cost that if you go from um you know running something on a VM in in the data center and you just start running that on a VM that you are now renting 24 by seven, and uh, and you're storing it on EBS, which you are renting 24 by seven, uh, that doing it that way is probably going to be more expensive than if you refactored and were able to successfully refactor. D- do you think that's a valid assumption?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a very valid assumption because in general, one of the things that you do when you refactor into smaller components is that you can up, up your resource utilization, and the cloud, of course, has these in offering container services and things like that, allows you to make more and more granular the consumption that you have. Mm-hmm. If you're just doing VMs, and you you're going to be charged for that VM, whether you're using 10 percent of it or 90 percent of it, you're going to be charged for that. And so the same problems that plagued you in, oh, my gosh, I've got way too much in my data center, and it's totally underutilized, if you move up into the cloud without thinking about that, you're not going to magically get cheaper. And in fact, that's one of those things that in the beginning, we thought AWS was going to be cheaper with everything, and other cloud providers. And then we realized, oh, no, actually, it is more expensive. than. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's, it's totally cheaper if you're only renting it for like five minutes. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right? Um, and, and by the way, the other thing, you know, you talked about the the, the VM part. The same thing is with storage. And this is, you know, this is our area that if you're going to use block storage versus uh, object storage, you're going to pay for what you provision right you you need to provision a 10 terabyte volume you're going to start paying tomorrow for 10 terabytes not three gigabytes that you put on that 10 terabyte volume that you created yeah think about it as you should be consuming
1: or increasing your sizing as you're actually consuming it so don't go deploy an eight node kubernetes cluster with 100 terabytes of underlying storage if you're only using say half of a node plus 10 gigabytes
2: right exactly Exactly. And so by refactoring, what you're able to do is you're able to use these m- more fine-grained consumption models that are available to you in the cloud.
0: And you can pump some of them up and some of them way down.
2: That's right. right. Auto-scaling is something that is pretty well understood in many, many respects now. Yeah.
1: Cornelia, and so you're publishing or you have a book um, and you do cover some of these patterns as well, right, that people can… Yeah,
2: ex- yeah, exactly. So, and, and what I often say is that many of the patterns, you know, I've mentioned retries several times. They're not that complicated. It's like, okay, you, you make a request. And if you don't hear back in 500 milliseconds, then you can make a request again. So the patterns aren't that, that difficult. It's, I spend just as much content, just as much time in the book on the context so really understanding how you use various patterns in combination, what are you know what are the benefits that you get from that? So I spend way more time on the why than the patterns themselves. The patterns I cover, um, but I, I I'm kind of a first principles person, and I like to derive things. And so I guess in some ways I kind of derived all of that through mm-hmm.
0: the book. It's on Manning.com, but we'll put a link to it in the in the show description, and there will also be a code. We have um, through our relationship with Manning, we have a discount code um, to uh, for listeners that would like to buy the book. Or Cornelia, um I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, some of this, <laughs> again, some of this was over my head, but I got most of it. <laughs> I think any any good podcast where I feel a little bit stupid is great. <laughs> That that means that somebody somebody learned something. I think Prasanna was probably with you 100. percent What do you think, Prasanna? Were you? You're, was, you're a little closer to the yeah, developer a world.
1: little closer, and just being from the development side, I kind of understand some of these pains. So
0: yeah, yeah. So uh, so thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thank you for having me. It's been a real delight to talk with both of you.
0: And uh, thanks to the listener. And make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all.
3: the file, but I deleted it, to bad your backup system isn't worth a spit, finally I needed your backup, you had a chance to fix it, instead it's all jacked up, see how I'll write on Facebook about you, don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. Emails from you remind me of when they keep me thinking that we could restore it. run. Hoping that just for once it'll be completely done. Maybe